Please sit comfortably. To uh, give a title to this talk tonight, this first talk of session, um, it's Fully Experiencing Life. And Joko starts off her latest book um, with a chapter saying the, the, the title of the chapter is the only thing we need to know. And the only thing that we need to know is paying attention to experience at all. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? But she also goes on to say that it's paying attention to experience in a non-dualistic way. So it's not kind of along the lines of I am feeling anger or I am accepting myself, etc. It's just the pure experience of experiencing anger or the pure experience of loneliness right? or happiness or joy or despair, whatever it might be. So it's in life is to really turn up and fully experience your life across the wide, wide range of different experiences that we have. It's not cherry-picking experiences. Now, it's not, I'll, I'll go for the good ones, do you know, and, and the negative ones, don't want those. It's turning up to be fully engaged with life. And in this talk, what I'd like to do is to bring together a few themes that I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. The place I'd like to begin, and something that's really been, it's always been a, um, a fascination for me since I was quite young, but it's re been rekindled by reading the book I mentioned um, last Tuesday on um, neuroscience. The fact that we're conscious. No? Right now, we're all conscious. We're all consciously experiencing it's the thing which is closest to us. It is us. And every waking of mom at moment of our lives, there is conscious experience. And it's important, we just take it for granted. And it's important just to stop there and reflect on that, that what an extraordinary thing it is to have to be a human being in this body with this brain and to consciously experience life. Why is there consciousness and experience rather than just nothing at all? It's extraordinary. And it's a mystery maybe we'll never solve. Maybe philosophers and scientists will never solve it. But we live that mystery every moment of our lives. And there is, a, there is an awe and a kind of wonder in it. And it's part of what we touch base with in Zen practice. Not necessarily in the sense of some little conscious light inside of our brain, but that we're conscious of experience, of connecting it with life. Mm -hmm. um, you read a lot in Buddhist literature, like old Buddhist literature, about what a, what a, a gift it is to be a human being. You know, and they, there's very there's various different metaphors they use about um, to like an extraordinary opportunity to be born as a human being, and that you can be awakened through that experience. Well, I don't want to go into all the philosophic philosophical complications of it, 
but it's just extraordinary to actually be born a human being. And when we're bored with our lives or we're miserable or whatever, or we're suffering, we're often overlooking that very basic fact that that's what we're experiencing. Now, I want to say a little bit more about the experience of being I, you know, or me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Buddhism, we can be too glib in talking about no self and how there is no self, etc., etc. Um, and the fact is, there is there is an experience of self. You have a subjective experience of being you in your surroundings now with all of your memories and all of your relationships and I have a separate experience of being me here or Diana over there. Mm -hmm. So it is there. We can't just glibly say, oh, there's no self. Mm -hmm. There is is an experience of consciousness which is subjective Mm -hmm. and any um, philosophy of Buddhism or of Zen needs to accommodate that fact. If there was really no self, then we we would be dead or we'd we'd have no consciousness. But we are conscious. And the nature of different animals, you know, or different life systems is that they're self-organised. They develop somehow mysteriously out of self-organisation a sense that this is me here and that's my environment over there and I'm different from my environment because if I didn't have that sense of difference, I wouldn't have any sense of survival, right? So any, any being wants to survive, it wants to keep on eating, wants to keep on sleeping, wants to go another day, it wants to live. We all want to live. So we must have some sense of self-identity um, in order to survive each day. This is me and this is what I need to do. This is what I need to eat or whatever it is to keep on surviving. Right? So we need we need to recognise all of that is there, you know, and not, not somehow glibly deny that it's there. But of course there's a lot of different metaphors. Metaphors perhaps explain it better than anything else as to what the nature of that self is. It's not something permanent. It's more like a, an improvisation on a melody. You know, it keeps changing and moving all the time. It's not a thing. No one's ever found a thing, which is me. Uh-huh. But it's a stream that's constantly changing, stream of consciousness, stream of experience coming and going. Uh-huh. And it's quite extraordinary just to to be present to that. So we use the examples of, um, Joko used the example of a, a whirlpool in the river. You know, the self is like the whirlpool, right? But it's not separate from the river. But there is a whirlpool. Mm-hmm. There's a form. And Hakuin uses the metaphor uh, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. Right? Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is water, but there are ice, there are ice cubes. 
and they're separate from one another. Ice cubes exist. We go back to the Heart Sutra. It starts off saying over and over again, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the conundrum. Everything is empty of a self and yet there is a self. And I'm going to um, be a bit um, blasphemous now and criticise some of the sacred things about Zen texts. I enjoy being a bit blasphemous. Um, The Heart Sutra, as Thich Nhat Hart pointed out, um, starts off saying that form is emptiness and emptiness is form and says it several times in the first few lines. And then, as he points out, it goes on to just talk about emptiness. No eyes, no rose, no tongue, you know, no attainment, no, 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 all the way through, right to the end. And he critiques it and says it becomes unbalanced at that time. It's just taking this absolute position of no self, you know, everything is emptiness. When it started off saying that emptiness is form, everything is empty, yet everything is full of form. And when you start to look at the, the Chinese sutras, like in particular the identity of relative and absolute, it comes closer to what we're actually talking about. Right? Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. The absolute is the relative, the relative is the absolute. There is a self, but there's not an absolute self. Mm-hmm. So it's important to really recognise this, that you don't think that you're, you're somehow looking at some kind of experience where the I is going to disappear, as in the sense of conscious experience. It's not going to disappear. So put people, people in their heads and, and makes people doubt what practice is about. And the best way of describing it is um, uh, Bob... Rosenblum does, who's now recently become an ordinary mind teacher in California. As I mentioned the other night, we are observer participators. We're not just, there's not an observer in there like a thing that's me permanently, but there is observing, participating going on all the time. We're both together at the same time. Words fail to really describe it. but that's perhaps the best we can come to it. So there is conscious experience and it is this sense of I, this subjective sense of being me, which we we carry around with us each day. Now to come back to what Joko was saying, the only thing we need to know is paying attention to experience. There's a big difference between being an observer participant and, let's say, an observer manipulator of experience or of life. To be be an observer participator is to just be committed to fully experiencing whatever comes up. But to be an observer manipulator is to have, you know, this sense of being me, this conscious experience becomes something 
inflated, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and it becomes more important than anything else. And then once we've got this inflated sense of observer and permanence, then that's where, in Buddhist terms, greed, hatred and ignorance arises. We've got, every, got to do everything to feed this self. We've got to do everything to maintain it and to make it bigger and better. Uh, and then it becomes kind of dominant over experience. That becomes the I that we're trying to dissolve. It kind of becomes bigger than experience and it's got to draw things into it. It's got to keep manipulating life so that it gets what it wants all the time and avoids what it doesn't want. Like it's like, it's crazy, like someone who's manipulating money or wealth all the time and they, they accumulate billions of billions and billions of dollars and they've got enough to eat a thousand times over or, you know, to live in lovely houses, but they keep, they've got to keep making billions and billions, right? It's just this sort of driving irrational force to inflate the ego more and more. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no real understanding of the, of the intimacy of life to be a full participant in whatever occurs. Mm-hmm. That's one example. You could, there's various ways in which people try to deal with the fact that they're a conscious observer. Some people want to avoid the pain of their lives, so they make themselves unconscious. Like they, they take drugs or alcohol you know, to blot out the consciousness or to manipulate the consciousness in some way. Or some people are kind of observer hedoners, like they just want to chase pleasure all the time, you know, to, to not really experience life fully. But what Joko's saying, what any Zen practice or teacher is saying, is that when we just turn up to pay attention to our experience in a non-dual way as an observer participant and are willing to just experiencing anything that comes along fully, that is, that is the transformative power of Zen right there. But we don't always do that. You know, we, we, want, to, we want to experience the comfortable things or the pleasant things. We don't want to experience things like boredom or lack of motivation or fatigue or depression or just general dissatisfaction when it comes up. But as Joko emphasised as a teacher all the time, she was always encouraging people to go and fully experience the difficult things in your life. And it's by, by really going into it and experiencing it that something transforms. Now. To go into it fully is to experience it in the body. So say you have a feeling of dissatisfaction. Instead of trying to work out why you're that way, right, or analyse it or do something to modify it or change it, you just go, oh, that's interesting, feeling of dissatisfaction. You experience it in the body and it's like you, you enter into it entirely. At first it seems like it's a courageous thing to do because it it might seem scary at first, but after a while it doesn't really take courage 
because it's just an interesting place to be. It's nothing, nothing terrifying necessarily is going to happen if you do that. You just think it will. Yeah. Or another example, you know, we're going through life and we find that we've lost our mojo, right? As the saying goes, we've lost motivation. And then we keep trying to think, where can I get my motivation from again? You know, how can I, how can I get it back again? Whereas what you do as a Zen practice, oh, lack of motivation, that's interesting. Let's dive into that experience. What it, what's it actually, what does it actually feel like to have no motivation? What's it actually feel like to be bored fully? It's very different from thinking about it. It's the willingness to plunge in. That's why I was emphasising that, that koan the other night, you who sit on the top of a hundred foot pole, take a step and show your body in the ten directions. It's so easy just to sit on the top of the pole being the observer. Oh, I'm watching life go by. Uh -huh. But you're not participating in life, if that's all you do. There's still a, an eye over here witnessing that over there. And there's a disconnect between the two. So like I keep mentioning, um, Zen is very, very simple. And I think as Dogen says in one of the readings, don't overlook it because it's just so simple. But it is so simple. What could be more simple than actually paying attention to every experience you have fully? In some sense, we all know it, it's easy to do and yet, it, yet it's difficult to do. And one of the trans transforming, what's part of the transforming experience is that when we're very aware of conscious experience and being able to fully turn up, um, instead of just being preoccupied with our own conscious experience, we go, oh, there's other people out there, there's other beings out there, there's other animals and insects out there, and they all appear to have conscious experience as well. Mm -hmm. And instead of it just being about my conscious experience, it's about being interested in, and concerned about the conscious experience of others. Right? We're kind of like we're all we're all in this together. We're not just isolated selves. And that's what brings about a sense of sangha, a sense of community, a sense of ecology, a sense of empathy. Then for the suffering or the non-suffering of other sentient beings in the world. Right? It goes beyond just the self-survival and self-preoccupation. And in an ecological sense, what we all understand is if we actually have an empathy for the whole of sentient life, that will probably be our best way of surviving. Mm -hmm. Just being an, an isolate is not a very effective way of surviving. Mm -hmm. So there is an I, but it's impermanent. It self-organises, it has consciousness, but it's changing all the time. And it's, it has no basic substance to itself, but it does exist. Mm -hmm. And we, we, the simplicity of Zen is we come back, the transformative experience 
is it doesn't matter what's happening in your life, whether they're favourable circumstances or unfavourable, they're just things that change all the time. What happens with Zen practice is every moment is wondrous. Mumon said every day is a good day. Right? Every, every moment is wondrous if you, if you come back to that basic experience. Right? And that's, that's the transformation that occurs. It doesn't mean you won't feel pain anymore or depression anymore sometimes or suffering of one kind or another, grief, loss. That's just the experience it is to being human. But it's not a poor me experience woe is me experience, the, 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 the experience of wonder of all those things, even the wonder of suffering, is what changes in our experience of life. So a Zen life is fully experiencing life, or as Bob Rosenblum said in the, the, the title of his, his talk, mindfulness is full engagement. Mm-hmm. So please remember that as we go through this session. Just savour every moment of your experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or whatever, and you, you'll bring that out into your everyday life. And that's the transformative experience. <laughs>